He stuck his tongue on my mouth. Love. Okay. Hello. Got the cat as usual. I've noticed he's a regular customer. He likes to, it's awful. I'll close my door and I'm like alone and I'm like, oh, finally, like peace and quiet. And then he'll sit outside my room just meowing nonstop until I open the door. (laughs) He wants love. It's a regular occurrence though. Like it doesn't matter if it's three in the morning or (laughs) in the morning or midnight, he's there. And he's like, until someone lets him in. Oh my god, that's great. But yeah, this is gonna be a wreck today. Oh god. It'll be fun. Okay. So, we have to introduce ourselves, don't we? This is Eli. And I'm Ian. And this is... Conspiracy Crashers! Yay. Anyways, um, ghosts. Today we are talking about ghosts, because we got a write-in that basically said, we are ghosts. It was anonymous. I, like, looked at the email to be like, is there a name in the email? And it was, like, Princess Consuela Banana Hammock, which is a Friends reference. So I was like, well, that's not any help at all. All I know about this person is we like Friends and we're all ghosts. So we said, you know, fuck it, let's do it. Ian is science everything. (laughs) I'm usually science everything, but I have some firsthand experience with this. Um, A lot of my family does, and I kind of believe it runs in families. So I'm a lot less skeptical of this one. So it's going to be an interesting contrast today. First of all, before we get into this, we changed our premise slightly from just literally... We are ghosts, as suggested in the email. Uh, I think we're going to be getting in specific details of communication with ghosts. Yeah, it definitely went more communication with with hosts. Hosts for the ghostly possessions? You're right, you're right, because we have um, some good old mediums in here. Um, Communication with ghosts, possessions, and then some good old ghost sightings. Because um, a lot of times people will see them, but they can't talk. So, yeah, it's definitely not We Are Ghosts. Because while that is a fun, trippy thing to think about, it's not enough to do a full episode on. So, yeah, exactly. This is the first one I think we have where we're not asking a specific question. We're just sort of exploring the subtleties and details behind interactions which are supposedly with ghostly entities. Right. So types of communications. Typically, there's a medium involved um, because a lot of people tend to believe that ghosts can only be seen and heard by experts who have been explicitly trained in it. They try and use a medium for safety's sake because you don't really know what could come through. So Ouija boards are the most commonly used without a medium because you can get them anywhere. And um, I don't really recommend using one. I've used one a couple of times. I don't recommend it. Don't do what I do, please. Why specifically are you not recommending a Ouija board? So Ouija boards can't be cleansed. 
once you've opened the veil once, it gets thinner and thinner, which means things can get through more and more easily. Hmm. With the Ouija board, I will like to note there is the planchette that you all have to have your hand on. So someone could be consciously or unconsciously moving it. So that also almost automatically denotes it. Um, so that's the first form, and that's the most commonly done by yourself. The next most commonly done by yourself is through lucid dreaming. When you're in a meditative state, um, your subconscious is the most open and vulnerable to be able to access things that you can't normally access, which is why like lucid dreaming is really common in like hypnotherapy for PTSD, because it gets your mind in a place where you're able to talk and see things without the emotional connection. And so you're able to get it out there to deal with it without like holding back. So um, because of this, it leaves a really like open environment for you to see or do something that your conscious won't let you do when you're fully alert. After lucid dreaming, you get into Bloody Mary territory um, using a mirror. Mm. You know Bloody Mary, right? Yeah. Okay. So she appears in the mirror and she's going to kill you and you're fucked. Um, And if you were a little girl at a sleepover party, you all went into the bathroom to play it. And eight of you went running out screaming and one person would stay in there because they were the ones that wanted to do it and then would come running out screaming like 30 seconds later and be like, it happened, it happened. It did not happen. Um, But like, if you were a little kid, you probably played the game at a sleepover. But mirrors are viewed in pop culture as well as a portal to another dimension. It is a pretty common belief that through this portal, you can talk to ghosts. And, you know, like, you're taking a shower, the mirror fogs up, and you'll, like, do you ever, like, draw on the fog of the mirror? Mm-hmm. They think you can use it as a makeshift Ouija board and that the ghost can spell out in the fog. Now, I will say, really fun fucking prank. Don't ever go to a sauna with me because you can guarantee I will be fucking with people. So those are, like, your big ones that you can do by yourself. So scrying is going to be the next big thing. Scrying comes from Old English. This can be dated back as early as 3000 BC. Scrying means to reveal. Um, And typically, this is your crystal ball. Um, Although, like, other objects can be used as a medium. It doesn't have to be a crystal ball. It's you and um, your psychic. It's never going to be just you doing this. Basically, your medium, not the psychic, but the medium that y'all are going to do it through, serves as a place to focus your attention, which allows you to remove unwanted thoughts. Um, And so you're watching the surface until a vision appears. Then we get into table tapping or um, table tipping, table tilting, all the same thing, just different names for it. And it's not much different from the way you use a Ouija board. You sit around the table with your hands flat on it, slowly recite the alphabet. And when a spirit needs to use one of the letters, they'll shake the table um, and then repeat the process to spell out their response. The most common, I think, in this day and age is using an EVP. What is an EVP? So an EVP is 
an electric voice phenomena. Ah, yes. So an EVP device is basically like voice memos on your phone. It's going to record. Um, yeah. There's also a spirit box, which does pretty much the same thing. Um, and then you have your like EMF detectors, which are the ones that are going to light up um, when you're near something. I believe literally it detects electromagnetic fields, right? That's why it's an EMF. Yeah. So with the EVP, you can record the conversation because a lot of times the human ear can't pick up what the spirit's saying because um, spirits that aren't poltergeists feed off of energy. And so if they don't have enough energy, they can't completely respond to you, which is also why you hear like knocks and scratches and like noises a lot more often than like a voice. I have to ask, uh, what energy do they feed off of? For a while, they thought they fed off of positive energy, like from people. What is positive energy from people? Mood? No, like they feed off the living. So just the energy of biological processes? Yeah, like you're alive, and so they're feeding off of that. But also, now that there's so many electronic devices, they think they're able to pull from that. Did ghosts evolve? No, I think it always was that they could feed off of that, but like there wasn't a lot of that, you know, in the 1800s. I mean, the Earth's a magnetic field, man. The cell phones in the room don't have like as much energy as the metallic core of the Earth. All right, Ian. BuzzFeed has a ghost hunting thing. What is it called? BuzzFeed Unsolved Supernatural. They also do true crime. Yeah. We're doing a really bad job. We're plugging other shows that we're telling people to watch instead of ours. They can't see us. They can just listen to us. But if you want to see it in live action. So before you like start trying to summon things, training with a medium is necessary. And so they say, even if you're just wanting to do it for fun, you want to ask um, an experienced medium for tips. After you've done that, they say there's three big steps. You have to be serious and focused the entire time. If you're serious and focused throughout the duration of it, you're more likely to be successful and less likely to be, a, be tricked by a malevolent... Ma malevolent? Thank you. Malevolent spirit. Second rule is always be polite. You don't want to aggravate the ghosts, especially if you don't know who or what you're communicating with. That's just like common courtesy though, man. Yeah. Ghosts are people too, but... Um, rule three is always say goodbye at the end of your session. If you don't clearly state goodbye, you're inviting the spirit to stay and continue communication. Once you've said goodbye, you're supposed to sage because sage acts as a barrier and a cleanser. A lot of people misconstrue this and will sage before and the ghosts are like, bitch, you just told me not to come and now you're telling me to come. Like, what do you want? That's how you get sassy ghosts who don't have time for you burning down your house. Say a lot of people, if they find out that they have a ghost from like the 1800s, will try and talk in that language. Just talk normally. It's recommended that you do all of this in a room that is calm, quiet, free of distractions, turn off electronics. So at this point, we've started. 
you ask a simple yes or no question to start. And typically the yes or no question is like, is there someone here? Um, be present. Um, if the things, if there's nothing present, be patient. Because if you get frustrated or angry, it could upset the spirit as well. Or just personal sounds of knocking scratches, etc. And if something does respond, thank it for being present. Do not believe everything the Ouija board tells you. It's notorious for not telling the truth. Spirits can be dishonest just like humans. Don't ask serious questions about death or the future. If the spirit starts to get aggressive, end the session immediately. To end the session, move the planchet to goodbye um, and remove your hands and the spirit will disappear. Um, that doesn't always work. I gotta ask, why would you even bother asking a ghost about the future? Do ghosts see the future? That's what they're alluding, I suppose. Well, if you'd watched our last episode, you would know that there's probably not a future to look at yet. But honestly, that's the first time I've ever heard of anyone saying a ghost arbitrarily knows the future, so. Now, I've, I mean, I have heard, you know, don't ask it questions about death. Well, that makes sense. That would be like asking a war veteran with PTSD about, like, what it's like to get shot. Right. Like, you just don't do it. Yeah. Um, and then seances will very quickly become out of control because spirits are unpredictable. Um, and that's why it's like really important to include an expert. In a seance setting, you end it by um, breaking hands, blowing out all of the candles, turning on all the lights, televisions, radios, and cell phones to create as many distractions as possible. You know, see the ghosts in your dreams. That's, I recommend that way. Just dream about them. <laughs> If you're going to be that bitch and try it, this is what you do. Take five green candles and light them. Next, take five petals from a red rose and burn those. After that, take a knife, prick your thumb, and let the blood drip on the candles without dousing the flames. And chant, God of my world, and the next, lend me your sight. Give the power to see things that can give people fright. Too long they've been trapped in the dark, but now let them in light. Then kill the flames. I have many questions. Why green candles? Why not? Because <laughs> maybe blue candles are more preferential. So they say the color of a candle can affect the mood of the practice you're attempting. So, so green is luck, success, growth and um, healing. And so you're combining that with the burning of the red and the blood, which is the power of flesh, personal power, energy, um, magnetism, and survival. If it were me, I'd wanna use gold because gold is enlightenment and a spiritual realm. So I don't know why they're using green and not gold, but that's what they said to do. When you're burning these, it's five petals, right? Five rose petals. Mm -hmm. Did you, do you burn like one petal over one candle or are you burning them separately? Um, you burn one over each candle. Okay. Are the petals red? Yeah, they have to be blood red. Then why would you need the blood at that point? Because your blood is what'll cause the connection for, the, for it to attach to you, um, which 
to me, is something you don't want to do. You don't want a spirit attaching to you. Like, it would be pretty sweet if I had a possessed rose bush. Like, the rose petal's going to go away. Well, sure. Well, just like your blood goes away when you put it over there and then it bonds to you. Well, then why wouldn't it bond to the rose that the rose petals came from? And again, I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm legitimately saying, oh, I know. I would love to have a ghost pal living in like a bouquet. <laughs> that would be fucking awesome. That would be awesome. I would, I would bring that to every party, man. I mean, the blood stays on the candle once you're done. It's not like your blood just like evaporates from a candle, you know? But I think that means it's going to be attached to you till that candle's gone. And if it takes, you know, five minutes to do this spell, you're going to have your blood on there for a while. There's so much I could say. But the purpose of this demands that we accept the premise that ghosts exist. While there's so much I could say, this probably isn't the video for it. So for now, let's just get into the stories and then we can talk about afterwards what science has to say about what kind of difficulties could occur when you're trying to communicate with a ghost, assuming it exists. Yeah, all right. So getting into firsthand accounts, um, I asked a lot of my friends, um, a lot of my mentors, my mom, um, my sister's roommates, like just people in our life. So... There's certain names I'm going to change because they asked me to, and there's certain ones that they didn't care. So we're going to start with my sister's roommate, Sydney. Um, They lived in this apartment called the Greenhouse. And Sydney said, there was a time Darlin and I were in the living room um, of the Greenhouse singing A Little Fall of Rain from Les Mis. And as soon as we said, keep me safe, we heard a whisper behind us say, keep me safe. Very clear as day. We thought it was Alex, but we turned around and Alex was asleep on the couch. So we are now moving on to Alex's, my sister. She said, I've seen a tall man in a gray suit, I think twice. Once in the living room of the greenhouse in Oklahoma and once in the garage at home. Did she report her men in gray sighting? Um, She said, one time I walked past my room in the greenhouse and saw a little girl sitting on my bed. Double took and she was gone. Also saw tons of hands reaching out of my closet a couple of times. I was in the bathroom on tour. I was the only one in there and the toilet all the way at the opposite end of the room flushed on its own. And I was like, okay, that's weird, whatever. But then the next one goes off and then the next one and then the next one. And I'm like, um, and then the next one and the next one. And then they all started flushing one at a time down the road towards me. I left very quickly. There was one theater where the basement had mirrors on every wall. I kept seeing a woman in the reflections out of the corner of my eye. And then she said, overall, anytime I felt unsafe, I haven't seen anything. The times I've seen people, I've been like, huh, that's there. Okay. And moved on. My friend Austin said, I would be at the computer when I was little, and every time I would be there, I'd see a dark shadow on the left side. But when I would look, there was nothing there if I turned my head. And then he said, there was a time when I was jumping on my bed, and in the air, I stayed in the same spot for five or six seconds, and I fell. My friend, who would prefer to stay anonymous, said, I used to talk to the corner when I was little. When asked what was there, I would say, my friend, he's dead now. Now we have someone else who would prefer to stay anonymous. 
So our first one is I see orbs a lot in places they shouldn't be, like there's no light sources nearby. And sometimes I can tell someone exactly like there used to be a hidden room there. I used to talk to these kids on my bed um, and would talk to them about the revolutionary, revolutionary war in graphic detail about like how they died. I was three, so I shouldn't have known anything about the war. Um, those dudes, direct quote, those dudes were my first real friends. What a shame they were dead. Kinda past life, kinda ghost. I was in a basement and I walked in, said, nope, and turned and ran out. And when asked if I was okay, I looked someone dead in the eye and said I died in there. Um, looking at a past account, um, there was a bombing there in the 1930s. Um, in the basement of my first apartment, um, other people felt really weird vibes in there too. And there were two specific spots that were always like super duper cold and cold spots are common. Um, one next to this massive hole in the wall where no one knew what, let, what it led to. Mm -hmm. um, and the other by this light that would hang on the chain. Um, and every time I go down to get my laundry, the light would flicker. And I always was like, eh, it's an old light, like whatever, it's nothing. But then I started seeing orbs and figures floating and would hear whispers saying like this way. And do you think he knows we're down here? I talked to my housemate and she said, yeah, this used to be a surgical suite. Here's my personal favorite. I was driving home around 3 a.m. after making a joke about not wanting to go home at midnight because it's the first witching hour. Here's the issue. 3 a.m. is the second witching hour. On the way home, I was driving completely alert when out of nowhere, what looked like a naked man came running on all fours dead at my car. I slammed on my brakes and there was nothing there. I got home, went to bed. Next morning, turned on the news and they found a dead body about 800 feet from where that happened. Um... I was a tour guide at Winchester Mystery House, and tours would start at 9 a.m. and go until 7 p.m. You never wanted the 7 p.m. tour, because by the time you were on the last fourth, it was dark. You had just the dying light of the sun. I was on the 7 o'clock tour, and I was coming up the stairs um, to the highest point of the mansion you can safely get to. It's the fourth floor, a little loft with a big window. And you'd stand by the window so you could gesture out to show them where the construction would have been happening. As I was walking out there, there was a large shadow walking towards me. I looked and it continued towards me. I asked the others on the tour if they saw it and they said, we didn't see anything, what did you see? I looked out the window to see if there was anyone there, like a window washer, but there was no one there. I asked um, other tour guides after and they said the only reason someone would have been out there was if they were doing construction. Construction hasn't happened since 1947. And then she said, I also for a while worked at the 9-11 Museum. Um, and it's on ground zero, so I'd heard from other people that it was super haunted. My job there was to take care of visitors and pr promote the charity that some of the funds go to. Sometimes on breaks, I would go down to the memorial where the pictures of the victims were, and I would pick someone at random and pull up their profile and read about them and what they did. And I noticed two little kids who were on the observatory with their dad when the attack happened. One of them, I noticed it was their birthday. I pulled up the profile and there wasn't much because they were a child. My shift ended shortly after. I pulled the radio out of my ear, went in the elevator as the doors were closing. I heard clear as day, a little voice say, help me. I was completely alone. Um, at Eastern State Penitentiary, 
we were wandering the cells and we had gone into one of them and we're having a conversation about how shitty it would be to have to stay in solitary confinement. When out of nowhere, my friend went ghost white and started yelling, get out, we have to go now, he wants to hurt you. We all kind of laughed at first, but they kept insisting that we had to leave. And then my other friend went just as pale and said, no, it's angry, we have to go. Um, also at the penitentiary, um, there were a lot of cold spots. We have one image with a shadowed figure clearly visible in an area that was completely blocked off. Um, anonymous kept waking up with scratches all over her arms. So she put on long gloves and taped them around her arms and still woke up covered in scratches. Everyone did a spiritual calling with a Ouija board. I added in the notes, you gotta be fucking kidding me. And kept saying, give us a sign you're here until stuff started to fall and the power went out. They didn't hear anything, but when listening back to the EVP, there was distinct knocking and scratching. And then my final personal account was, I can see and speak with the dead and I hate it when people tell me how cool it is. Hello, I was trying to sleep before you entered my body unwelcomely. Damn spirits of the dead need to stay away. Nice. Is that all you're gonna say? Not the purpose of this video to disprove ghosts. <laughs> all right. Hey, bro. Hey, bro. Awesome bro take. Yeah, man. I hoped you noticed I got it from Phoenix Fit. Like the bird? No, it's spelled F-N-X Fit. Fuel for greatness. Oh, yeah, man. You are pretty great. You know, I've totally heard of them. I get my protein powder from them. Dude, bro, you use protein powder? That's why you look so good. Man, thanks, bro. Dude, I'm looking at the website right now. They donate a gallon of clean water to parts of the world that don't have it every time you make a purchase. Well, bro, that's so beautiful. Just like our bromance, dude. I love you, bro. No, I love you, bro. Use the code CRASHER with a capital C for 15% off every purchase at fnxfit.com. So now we're going to go into just some like random little factual things I found. So it's really common. There's a cat butt in my face now. Nino! Many say that they first got into... Um, ghost hunting as a child after having supernatural experiences such as sensing a paranormal present or seeing a figure. Others say they followed in the footsteps of a psychic family member. More than a fifth, so 22% of them, said that they talk to spirits or take part, part in paranormal investigations every day. Friends and family often perceive um, ghost hunting and speaking to ghosts as weird unscientific, and nonsense. A few said their acquaintances would describe it as scary. People enjoy feeling like they're communicating with loved ones who have died and feeling reassured that there is life after death. One respondent said they do not like to use the word ghost, but prefer to describe it as being in touch with the spirit world. While it is a special gift to communicate with spirits, it is possible to learn the process. She adds that the first sign that you may have any ability to interact with spirits is simply if you can see them from time to time. Commonly, the room temperature changes. Um, 
it's possible for you to have a random mood shift. Um, maybe you start to hear sounds coming from seemingly empty parts of the house. Those are all signs that a spirit may be hanging around. But even if you don't pick up any paranormal activity, you can still try sending a message. Some paranormal investigators think the spirits can manipulate random streams of data. Scientists have denounced that idea. Would you like to talk on that? What do they mean by random streams of data? Changing and editing what you see, deleting things randomly. Aha. Uh-huh. You know, you know what you know what else does that? Like scientifically proven does that? The human brain. We already do that neurologically. We don't need anything to do it for us. They actually did a really cool study. I just read about this, uh, where they showed that if your uh, vision, that if your vision was obstructed or uh, somehow like uh, restricted, like if you like were blindfolded halfway, like if you had an eye patch over, or if, or especially for people who actually suffered like trauma to the head. And like, like they'd get like, like fuzzy spotches in their in their vision. Uh, within two seconds, the brain would already have taken in random information from outside of the environment and tried to replace the image with something uh, that they that the brain thought should be there. And as a result, they like what would what would normally be a square to them wound up being warped to look more like a rectangle, simply because their vision had changed somewhat. And that doesn't mean an actual change happened. It just means the brain interpreted the information correctly and literally guessed. If we're talking whether or not ghosts do it or the human brain does it, we've already proven the human brain does it. I can't imagine a ghost being better at it than our own brains. Electricity seems to attract spirits. Um, And this is from a priest. He said, human beings have a lot of electricity in our bodies. It is believed that when we pass over, our spirit becomes something in the universe, sort of an electrical current. Oh, hold on. Define <laughs> lots of electric- electrical energy. I am a source of power. Because, like, there is electricity in the human body. But I guarantee you there's less than you think. Let's look this up. I've never actually looked up what the exact electrical content of a human being is, but how much electricity in a human body? The average human at rest produces 100 watts of power. Almost all of that power goes solely to biological functions. So where is this leak of power that's attracting spirits? Up your ass. Nice. If you're going to make a theory about ghosts, you can't have it defy physics, at least for the purpose of communication. I beg to differ. Based on what? So a scientist said, Uh there is nothing in this world that doesn't exist for someone somewhere at some time, including being able to connect with and contact a spirit. You have to have your mind open to it to ever have something happen. Which I kind of, I, can, I understand what he's going towards. This sounds a lot to me like a psychological effect, though. I think the term existence as used by this scientist isn't, the, isn't literally saying 
something exists because you think it does or you feel that it does because we have false sensory inputs all the time. Perhaps perception of existence occurs for anything at some point for someone. That's fair. Skeptics will say the EVPs and the EMF detectors Ah, um, are neatly packaged random word generations. Any connection of energy the selected words or phrases bring forth is found solely in the minds of gullible users. So skeptics are now saying basically that like it's all just a randomized chance that something comes through and is accurate. Uh, The other thing to keep in mind is that what an EVP is, is just an electronic storage of all the sound picked up by equipment. It doesn't actually show you the cause. Uh, And the other thing to consider is that most of what we consider to be like meaningful data isn't. We have studies of people picking out faces, images of faces from static images that were just sound recordings, uh, when in fact there were no faces, it was just a chaotic distribution of shading. Similarly, we have neurological and psychological effects on record and heavily proven where if you just have incomplete sound bites, which correspond to literally just background static accidentally picked up by a machine, uh, your brain seeks out patterns in these words and, and will strongly associate the noises heard with things you've experienced. So most of the time, the issue with EVPs and EMFs is that they reveal something about your environment or something about you and not something about ghosts. That's the difficulty with using them. Ghosts are technically spirits that have not yet have had closure with leaving. Was that, that the definition we're running with? Yes. Okay. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Okay. With that in, well, for this fact it is. <laughs> oh, for this particular fact? Yes. Okay. With that in mind, one would think that countless unsolved homicides and disappearances could be easily solved simply by contacting the dead and getting specific incriminating evidence about the circumstances of their death. Mm -hmm. Despite that, after more than a century of research, science has yet to validate the afterlife, ghosts, or psychic powers. Of course, speaking to the dead requires no special skill or ability. It's getting a response that's the hard part. Shakespeare noticed, noted this in Henry IV, Part One, when Glendower claims to have psychic abilities with the line, I can call spirits from the vasty deep, to which his cousin replies, why, so can I, or so can any man, but will they come when you do call for them? So now we're going to get into Halloween. Halloween? Halloween. Okay. Spooky season. Why are we here at Halloween? Halloween is important. Is it just one of those auspicious days that people attribute a superstition to and so ghosts should show up on Halloween? No. Okay. Halloween usually coincides around the same time as the Day of the Dead. Okay. Um, So in the early 1800s, 
um, Halloween was Hallow's Eve. And because of the fact that it's right around the Day of the Dead, so you're honoring your loved ones, because you're already more in tune and more focused on death during this time, the veil between our world and the spirit world is at its thinnest. The dimensions start to overlap, making it easier to connect with the non-living. Mm-hmm. So, this, the living and dead together, um, celebrate Samhain, um, which is their sacred holiday, which marked the beginning of a new year. So that's the other importance of Halloween, was that used to, in some religions was the new year so not january every year on the day of the fourth cross quarter halloween the fall and winter was split equally in time the veils that once separated the spirit world from their world vanished and for 24 hours the world of the spirits and the world of humans became one during the witching hour on halloween there's apparently no veil and that's going to be the time that you're going to have the best chance. Then they said, do understand that not all ghosts know they're dead. If you're going to be the one to tell them, be prepared for any response. So I I assume there's a peer-reviewed study for this out already in like, no? So when I asked if this was just about superstition around an auspicious holiday and you said no what you meant was yes oh wait i thought you're talking about sorry that they don't know they're dead oh no no i mean like i would love to see a scientific study of these veils that apparently definitely exist but have never been seen literally no like scientific evidence but they're so we're so the reason why Halloween is definitely a good time to talk to spirits is because it definitely connects to the Day of the Dead, which has never been proven to actually connect to death. I'm going to go on record to say, if you're relying on a human invention to celebrate death as your means of communicating with ghosts, you're probably doing it wrong. (laughs) Moving on. So, once upon a time, in the 1800s, Witches and sorcerers lived amongst the Celts and the Druids in a magical land called the British Isles. Practicing magic, fortune-telling, talking to the dead, and astrology was really great value to them. Now using this, they developed the belief that ghosts are lingering energy in a location and they need to build energy in order to communicate. For a ghost to close a door or making a knocking noise, that might take all the energy they can muster up. Why are they saving up energy? And why are they lingering energies? So that goes into the belief that they are still there because they have something to fulfill. Okay. And so the energy is going to linger until they're able to fulfill it and they're going to want to store up as much energy as they can so that they can try and communicate. Okay. And on that belief, that's why the use of the electronics has become so prevalent with it. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't make sense, but I get what you're saying. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Now we're going in to humans. 
not possession though. Um, human beings are radios turned into certain frequencies. Go ahead. I know the face, go ahead. No, humans are not just light frequencies. Light is separate from other types of matter. There are different types of matter in the universe. Humans, humans are not purely light. We're not radios? We're not even good at emitting light. The closest we get is, you know, we emit some body heat and that can be picked up on the light spectrum. That's about it, you know? Very no. So through our radios. Through our radios. We have senses that we ignore and we have a sixth sense that humans tend to ignore we have the ability to feel what other senses do we ignore the sixth sense is what we ignore oh i thought i thought you i thought he said like we had a whole bunch of other senses no i i did how many senses are there six i just couldn't read my notes okay this is what happens when you type your notes at four in the morning that's fair okay we have the ability to feel each other this can be seen in scientific studies well yes we can we can physically touch each other and detect things they have done studies where people stare at the back of people's head and people are able to notice when someone's watching them yeah and so through that they're saying if we tuned into that better we'd be able to be in tune when there's a spirit near you oh they're saying that's the radio signal mm-hmm. oh well they're wrong, but... Uh, Why are they wrong? When you can detect someone staring at your back, it actually has to do with peripheral information. Uh, there's actually a lot, of subtle, uh, a lot of subtle biology into noticing things that are behind you that have to do with, uh, obviously, auditory clues. Uh, hearing something that has to have come from behind you is a really good indication that something is. I'm not sure if they've done this specifically for humans, but I know for some animals, they've shown that uh, changes in air pressure, which locally source from behind something, can uh, trigger certain uh, evasive responses from animals. Hmm. So even something as little as like a change in air pressure behind them can indicate that something is like there. So I mean, with that in mind, then it could be a spirit. It could be, but then you wouldn't need your radios for that. The theory in itself, though, of the sixth sense thing makes sense to an extent. The closest I can say to there being a scientific explanation for that is that the sixth sense is just an advanced combination of your already pre-existing five senses that are applied in an unorthodox manner. Okay. Like, Like, for example, if I was looking at something in front of me, that's normally how I use my sight. And then when you have weird things like reflections of light from behind you that somehow like pass up into your peripherals, like that's sort of an indirect use. And you wouldn't necessarily call that sight, but nonetheless, it conveys information. Okay. So like, you know, the sixth sense is basically just your five senses working in a way you can't properly interpret. Okay. Now... We're saying humans have a lot more mental and psychic energy than they're aware of. So a great deal of psychic and ghost activity happens in the dark and the evening because you have less of that mental activity getting in the way of your own sensory apparatus. First of all, they're being very vague when they talk about 
psychic energy or even the less mystical definition of mental energy i would say if they're talking about the difference between being awake in the day versus sleeping at night yes like your brain becomes in general somewhat less active at night however that doesn't mean your brain becomes like inactive what it actually does is it runs a bunch of like you know basically the equivalent of a computer's diagnostics tests does a bunch of those it does some maintenance it fires different uh neurological pathways just to you know keep keep uh basically just clean them out just make sure there's proper function and of course if that's the case then it would yeah it would make sense why like you would have weird dreams in phases between awakening and sleeping so at points where you are becoming tired uh you actually become more susceptible to outside suggestion to an extent you could say yeah there's more chance of experiencing paranormal things when you're in the evening as opposed to in the morning mm-hmm. and it does relate to something i think close to what they mean by mental energy but at the same time you have to keep in mind what it also means is that you're more open to just fucking up how you view the world in general because your brain's not working right okay i would say if you were actually trying to genuinely communicate with a ghost and make sure it wasn't an accident you'd be better off doing it in the day when you were maximally aware and you could guarantee this is more likely to be a ghost than my brain playing tricks. Okay. So I just sent Becca the ID and password because you made me think of an experience that happened to us when she was visiting me. Oh, really? Um, that I don't remember at all. Okay, well, cool. Let's have our favorite guest star back on the show. I remember feeling really dizzy. And then I remember waking up and Becca being like, are you okay? But I don't remember what happened between those. Was it late? It was like 11 p.m. ish. That's when I'm usually just starting to like wake up. Yeah, I was about to say, like, that's not very late for you. (laughs) No. Here she is. Becca, are you with us? Hey. (laughs) Becca! Hi. I have a favor for you. Yeah? We've We've been talking about how you're more likely to be able to see or communicate with a ghost in your dream or right before you fall asleep. So do you remember what happened when you were here with me? Oh, kind of. Okay, let me think about this. So I was in Alex's room with Doc and you texted me like, come here. And so I just came in and you were like staring with your head, like facing out and your mouth like kind of open, like you were shocked about something for like three minutes was like what's wrong what's wrong and you were just like didn't answer and I was so confused and then I said Doc could stay with you because he was in Alex's room with me and then we woke up in the morning and you were like oh like Doc slept with you last night and I was like no he slept with you I brought him in and you were like what and I said yeah I came into your room last night and we were talking for like a half an hour you're like, I don't remember that. I vaguely remember that it was people. I vaguely remember saying that, like, there were people all around me. Maybe, like, something like that. I don't really remember, though. That was... I, it was weird. But, but you do remember him just full-on spacing out for three minutes and then, yeah. like, having a conversation with you that he doesn't remember. I literally, I was telling Ian right before you came on, all I remember, I, I know the faces that it was people because I remember you telling me that the next day. 
but all I remember from like my personal account is I was drawing on my computer and I started to feel really dizzy. And then I remember waking up in the morning. That's so weird. Like, I honestly feel like you like fainted and then fell asleep, but like sleep talked. Like, do you ever, like, do you ever dream that you're having a conversation like a texting conversation as you're falling asleep and then you wake up and you're expecting a response and then you realize that nobody ever texted that whole conversation. Okay. My particular assumption is something possessed me. Really? The, the angry ghost in my room took over my body. Hmm. Did he express anything even close to anger? No, just confusion and really scared, I think. I'm going to go with Ian here, and I'm just going to say I think you were dreaming. I'm agnostic on the subject. I'm not going to deny it, but I'm not going to, I'm not nice. going to flat out believe it, you know? Fair enough. So yeah, that's that really weird experience. So like I said, if I were to, like, intentionally contact a spirit, I would do it in the day when I could be much more certain that it wasn't my brain tricking me because I was tired. Yeah, no, I think that's entirely fair. Or as close to sure as you can be. Yeah. Um, so now, I agree, it should be during the day if you want to be sure. Yeah. However, through your dreams is the most common. Uh, yeah. Because when you're asleep, your mind is open to things that we don't consider possible a lot of the time while you're awake. You know, it's frightening to people because it is an unknown. And so to see a loved one who died or whatever in a dream is a lot less scary than seeing them in your awake world. Um, and, you know, of course, on the science side of it, it could be the subconscious. Yeah. I do think that, like, you have to be careful in dreams in terms of interpreting them as, a, as an actual event. It's more a construct of your own brain than it is a representation of something external. Your dreams don't actually happen. Yeah. They are perceived to happen by a resting brain. You could maybe have a ghost interaction in a dream, but you wouldn't be able to literally interpret anything that happened in that interaction because you're not sure what your, your sleeping brain's interpretation of what a ghost is trying to tell you. You have no way of knowing if it has anything, if it's even close to what the ghost would be trying to say. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the danger of dreams, is that they are very susceptible to transformation and misinterpretation by your own right. brain. If anything, science has proven that we can't take what we've detected with our own physical senses as true. For example, we have optical illusions, which are literally just static images on paper that yeah. your brain can interpret as moving and twisting, simply through your brain's trying to figure out what is going on with the image, and misprocessing. I have to disagree that the key to communicating with a ghost is to trust your senses. That makes sense. I want to talk a little bit about the autism studies that were done. Nice. Let's do it. So there's been several studies on the atypical processing of somatosensory input in autism since 1997. Mm-hmm. So through these, 95% of the individuals on the autism spectrum have unusual sensory or perceptual experiences. 
2017, 63% of the HFA participants had experienced touch without anyone being present and 47% had seen shapes, light, and colors that were not caused by external stimuli. Only 7% in the comparison group of typical people, I hate that saying, of people that don't have autism. Yeah. Um, only 7% reported tactile experience and 14% visual anomalies. So that's my first little chunk on that. Cause like for me with autism, I'm very sensory aware. Um, textures really throw me um, being touched without warning. So like, it makes sense that the hypersensitivity of it. As a point of comparison, the estimated prevalence of autism in the general population is 1.6%. So my question is, do you think that they respond to people with autism because they have higher senses to feel their response? What the study just confirmed is that uh, people with uh, autism experience misinterpretations of sensory information or they experience sensations which are not caused by external by external information okay that's what the studies said see i'm viewing it more as it doesn't correlate with how most people see the outside world because there is no visible external stimuli but because of the way we're in tune with senses more than a non-autistic person, it's easier to sense the barrier. I mean, but we've done really unethical studies on what happens when a person is completely deprived of sensory information. Yeah. And their brains make up stimuli. It creates neurological disorders where the brain simulates uh, stimulation uh, simply for the purpose of trying to maintain neural connections. I also don't think that in this case, the study makes it more likely that a legitimate uh, ghost occurrence is going to happen with an autistic person as opposed to a non-autistic person. Again, this is kind of like with the dreams. It's not that it couldn't have actually been a ghost. It's just that when you have an extra variable where it could have also just been your brain making a mistake. So I will not say that an autistic person will not have experienced ghosts because we can't prove that from the studies. So okay. if there was a ghost, they might miss it. If there wasn't a ghost, they might see one. Mm -hmm. That's the issue. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Because again, we're not talking about whether or not ghosts exist. It's whether or not we can reliably communicate with them. That's the question here. Right. Okay. More science. Here we go. In controlled experiments, Schwartz, our scientist in question, said he could validate a genuine medium if he or she could provide information about the spirit they were talking to, including intimate details the medium could not research ahead of time. Um, then he would have a close family member or friend of the deceased person check the information. Based on the evidence of many experiments, the conclusion um, was, yes, some mediums are real. And once you know that some mediums are real and they're not all fakes and not all frauds, and you can't explain it by any of our standard conventional ways, you then have to accept the data and follow it where it takes you. 
his research was um, funded by private entities, um, led him to the conclusion that ghosts are real and some people can indeed communicate with them. He's now trying to identify spirits using a method astronomers use to see planets around distant stars. The only way to detect the planets is when they pass in front of the star blocking its light. In the same way, Schwartz hopes to detect spirits by having them pass their hands through a beam of light. When the spirit's photons block the light, he can detect the presence of ghosts. So far, he said the technology is only 70% accurate, which is statistically significant, but requires further testing. There are some immediate flaws with his research. Go for it. Tear it apart, Ian. The first problem is he's making the assumption that ghosts have photons in their constitution. Yes. But we can detect photons, like, already. That's how radios work. That's how microwaves work. You know, like, laser detectors. That's how those work. That's how we see. Not to mention, light has energy. And if ghosts start popping up and literally creating new energy... We've broken laws of thermodynamics that govern the entire operation of the universe. He says the device in question that he's using is 70% accurate. Yes. But the test itself is just to see if a light beam is broken by something moving in front of it. We have 100% effective flashlights that can do that. So how did he find a flashlight that's only 70% effective and decide this was the technique to use. The more interesting thing was the study on the mediums. Mm -hmm. That's much more interesting. You do still have to worry about the validity of the experiment. But what I can say is that without looking at an experiment more, more thoroughly to see what the procedures were, different types of tests are better at confirming something than another. Right. So my research actually is about the proper way to approach different ghosts when communicating with them from the scientific perspective. All right. So I'm not sure if that would be better before or after we talk about possessions. Okay, well. Maybe, maybe we should just go to possessions and then I can throw my stuff in at the end. All right. So possession, it starts with the demon gaining a foothold. So foothold. Permission is granted for the inhuman entity to enter. This could involve dabbling in the occult or using divining techniques such as the Ouija board. Um, in some cases, permission given will not have been obvious in the victim's memory. Hmm. So after that, infestation. Poltergeist-like activity which generates fear, which in turn fuels the demonic. So that's going to be your plate shattering things, flying around the house, blah, blah, all of that. Scare tactics. It wants you to be afraid because that's what they feed off of. Hmm. So then we get into oppression. Because time has no meaning to an inhuman entity, this stage can vary from days to years. Paranormal phenomenon intensifies, Jesus, such as the movement of objects increasing in scale and tapping or knocking becoming loud pounding. 
Injury without obvious cause will occur, such as scratches or bites. Um, nightmares and sleep deprivation will break down the constitution of the individual. The person's weaknesses will be targeted with the ultimate desired, desired result on the part of the demonic possession. So then possession happens. The most common description of being possessed is violent behavior and sacrilegious outbursts, aversion to the spoken name of Jesus Christ, blessed objects and holy water, abnormal or superhuman strength, ability to speak languages never before studied, psychic or paranormal abilities such as telepathy, levitation, or poltergeist activity, knowledges of facts about other individuals they have never met, <laughs> wounds appearing that are not self-inflicted or inflicted by an obvious outside source. Other phenomena associated with the presence of the demon include repulsive odors, a marked decrease in the temperature and spontaneous movement or destruction of objects in the room of someone allegedly undergoing possession. That's a possession for you. Hey, bro. Hey, bro. Awesome bro take. Yeah, man. I hope you noticed I got it from Phoenix Fit. Like the bird? No, it's spelled FNX Fit. Fuel for greatness. Oh, yeah, man. You are pretty great. You know, I've totally heard of them. I get my protein powder from them. Dude, bro, you use protein powder? That's why you look so good. Man, thanks, bro. Dude, I'm looking at the website right now. They donate a gallon of clean water to parts of the world that don't have it every time you make a purchase. Well, bro, that's so beautiful. <laughs> Just like our bromance, dude. I love you, bro. No, I love you, bro. Use the code CRASHER with a capital C for 15% off every purchase at fnxfit.com. So we're on to poltergeists. So these are um, accounts from an exorcist. They said, the goal is to initiate a reaction of fear. Fear is what a demon feeds off of because it makes them stronger. Demons can also appear in more friendly forms to gain acceptance into a home or life. For example, demons can appear to very small children as another child to gain acceptance into the child's life and home. This is where some children get their imaginary friends. This is also a good example of how they deceive people to get what they want. Poltergeist activity typically starts with minor isolated incidents. This could include unexplained sounds or familiar objects, such as your keys or your phone moving from their usual place. But while poltergeist activity is typically short-lived, manifestations typically lasting around five months, some cases persist for several years. Now, this particular exorcist said, over 90% of all ghost sightings are psychological projections or a bereavement reaction. Often people see the ghosts of dead loved ones because they have a deep inner desire to see them again. Usually the correct counseling will prevent these projections from continuing. The other 10% are due to genuine paranormal activity. They can be place memories, which are like video replays of past human activity, which can be re-energized by a traumatic event. Nothing can be done to erase a place memory or the ghost can be an unrested soul, in which case a requiem mass must then be said wherever the ghost is to lay it to rest. 
there's a saying that you don't catch a demon like you catch a cold. You have to actually invite one into your life, which happens when people tamper with Satanism or accidentally let a ghost that's hiding its form into their life. Possession happens when someone has lost their own will and it has been taken over by an evil force. Possessed people look very sad and troubled, and yes, the possession can manifest itself physically. I've seen people with excessive strength and violent reactions and people speaking in different voices or languages. The medical term is possession syndrome. Performing an exorcism takes a lot of preparation by not only the subject, but by the exorcist too. Um, and this priest, who was this exorcist person, trained in Italy with other exorcists and has assisted in 600 exorcisms and receives five or six calls a day from people who believe they are possessed. Um, before each exorcism, he has to go through a series of prayers and confessions so the devil will not be able to reach him during the exorcism. He said the key signs that an exorcism will need to be performed is after excessive prayer and um, holy water and like your basic saging, cleansing. Things haven't changed. Um, they're still able to speak unknown languages. They have unhuman like strength and the knowledge of the unknown. Are they saying that possessions are solely against Christian values? Are they assigning religious value to ghosts? Um, because like, because like you can't tell me there aren't ghosts in Chinese mythology because there are, and they still have shrines in Japan for ghosts. Like, why are, why are we talking about possessions like it's only if aversion to the word Jesus, to the name of Jesus Christ? Right, but then it also says aversion to anything that's viewed to be holy or pure. So it doesn't... Then what about ghosts of, like, nuns? He's an evil nun. But they clearly don't have aversions to holy places if they appear oh. in holy places. That's literally their hunting ground. We're also talking poltergeist, though, not your average spirit. I mean, so the likelihood maybe. of a poltergeistic nun is a lot lower than a serial killer. That's all I've got on poltergeists. Okay. You want to go ahead or do you want me to go into my horror movies? Let's just, let's just do the horror movies. Let's just get them out of the way. We're going to start with the movie Annabelle. The, that's the one with the uh, creepy doll girl, right? Okay. I, I think I actually do remember this in the news at some point. So there were two major paranormal events that hit the set of um, Annabelle. <laughs> the first was during pre-production. The director, John R. Leonetti, reported seeing and taking a picture of three fingers drawn through the dust along the window backlit by the moon. Notably, the demon of Annabelle has three fingers, so naturally it spooked the director. Second, producer Peter Safran can attest that while mysterious markings may be easy to dismiss, Sudden, unexplainable events that mirror the horror of the film being made are harder to write out. He recounted the following. The first day that the demon was shooting in full makeup, we brought the demon up in the elevator. He walks out and walks around the green room to where we're holding the talent. And just as he walks under, a giant glass light fixture is being followed by the actor. Just as he walks under, a giant glass light fixture falls down on his head. In the movie, the... Um, and in the script, the demon kills the janitor in the hallway that way. So that's Annabelle's. The nun, um, there was an unexplained bruising, um, an alleged water poltergeist, 
and while filming a sequence in the narrow hallway of a real-life Romanian castle, Corin recounts stepping into a side room to allow a camera, camera to pass. When he entered the dark space, he saw two men sitting up at the back of the room. He assumed they were crew members. Corin stayed in the room for one take and upon completion turned to speak with the men, but they were gone. In a room with only one way in and one way out, Corin was understandably terrified. Rosemary's Baby, um, shortly after the film came out, the director's wife was murdered by members of the Manson family. And um, producer William Castle had a near-death experience that put him in the hospital. And while he was there, he kept hallucinating and yelling at people to drop the knife, which caused a presumed possible outcry of possession. Um, the Omen, this one is crazy. Um, to start off with, the producer and executives of the film were on two separate flights, both of which were struck by lightning. Um, and then the producer shot himself in the head two days before filming was supposed to start. And then there's a scene in the zoo with monkeys and um, there was an animal trainer and the animal trainer died on set after a tiger got a hold of his head. And then um, special technician John Richardson got into a car accident right after the film was released, and he survived, but it beheaded his passenger, Liz Moore, 66.6 kilometers away from Omen, Netherlands. And the last one, my personal favorite, which does have a conspiracy theory around it, so we're not going to get too into it, is the poltergeist. This began after they used real skeletons in a scene where a character falls into a pool full of skeletons. The real ones were cheaper than the fake ones, so they paid for real skeletons and didn't tell the actors that they were using them. After that, there were really weird occurrences of people getting sick suddenly, light fixtures falling on people, random fires, like things weren't going so well. So they had this set blessed by Samson and he died two days after he blessed the set from a kidney transplant. Um, in between filming the first and second movie, Julian Beck died suddenly from stomach cancer that was never detected. And then during filming, of the second one, Heather O'Rourke, who was 12, died suddenly of cardiac arrest. Doesn't happen to children usually. Usually. Actress Dominique Dunn was strangled to death by her boyfriend. And then as recently as 09, when the like remake came out, a man who played a small role in the original film was chopped, was found chopped to pieces by an ex-convict. And I leave you with that. So ghosts are everywhere and don't do horror movies unless the set's been blessed except even after the set was blessed it did not a damn thing so uh yeah but you're doing don't, don't even try exorcism apparently you're doing a movie about a fucking poltergeist what did you expect the exorcism to work as advertised <laughs> that's what i expected i don't think they did an exorcism with that one they just blessed the set rookie mistake all i'm saying is it sounds like uh the methods are slip shot at best i would like to point out the use of real skeletons is just such a bad idea i mean if we're talking about like the sickness part i can't imagine having real skeletons around is just a good idea in terms of sanitation right and like i get that it's cheaper but like that's just something that like you don't i also think it's just personally disrespectful to just take people i mean where do you even get bones for sale like human bones I believe in the late 70s, early 80s, it was a lot easier to just buy skeletons. I don't know why, but 
to cut corners on budget. They just were like, okay, we'll get a real skeleton. Now, the first problem with that is that's really disrespectful to someone who died. Yeah. The second problem is you're potentially carrying disease onto a set now. Yeah. The third problem is they did not tell the actress until after. Also, didn't you say that they were falling onto the pile of skeletons? I feel like falling onto solid bone would hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like she got it. She would fall. She fell into a pool full of skeletons and was like drowning in the skeletons, essentially. Lauren, I don't know about you, but if we're talking about ghosts um, and poltergeists, especially, and you've put two hundred and fifty skeletons in a pool, something's gonna happen. Like, I mean, if that were true, then like funerals wouldn't be a thing. They would never be a successful funeral. Well. I'm talking like... We're talking about 250 bodies in a place? I would hope that at a funeral your hands are not on the skeletons. But you can't tell me there's not a lot of bodies there. Oh, there's a lot cemetery. of uh, Yes. And I'm... so the fact that there's so little haunting relative to how many bodies are there... But also, funerals are generally during the day. But then we've already talked about the problem with, you know... Right. Haunting, haunt, detections of hauntings at night. I have the big, super wild exorcism story if you want me to do it. All right, so this is the exorcism of Latoya Ammons and her family. Initially, um, a 36-year veteran of the Gary, Indiana Police Department said he thought Indianapolis resident Latoya Ammons and her family concocted an elaborate tale as a way to make money. But after several visits to their home and interviews with witnesses, Austin simply said, I'm a believer. Mm -hmm. But whatever the creepy cause of the occurrences that befell the family, whether they were seized by a systematic delusion or, or demonic possession, it led to one of the most unusual cases ever handled by Department of Child Services. In November 2011, the family moved into a rental house in Gary. Um, and all of a sudden, in December, big black flies started swarming their house. Now, in the winter, that's not normal. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> He's kidding you. I'm sorry. So the flies. She said... We killed them and killed them and killed them, but they kept coming back. The next thing that started happening was they were hearing footsteps climbing the basement stairs and the creak of the door opening between the basement and the kitchen. Um, they investigated and no one was there. And so they started locking that door at night, but they would still hear the same noise. Now, I will say a lot of times footsteps and doors opening aren't a physical thing, but historically ghosts are claimed to not be able to adapt to spatial changes. So that's why they can walk through walls. There was a door there at one point. Mm. So even if the door is locked, you're still going to hear it because he's repeating whatever. Okay. Um, Does that even mean that potentially the door itself wasn't opening at all? It was just, the ghost's motion itself produced sound. Mm -hmm. 
So she said that she awoke one night around three in the morning and saw a shadowy figure pacing in her living room. Upon an investigation, there was no human there, but there were large wet boot prints. Around 2 a.m., normally they'd be asleep, but a loved one died, so they were mourning with a group of friends when Ammons startled everyone by starting to scream. Um, they ran into the bedroom and their 12-year-old daughter was levitating above the bed, unconscious. But she was screaming? The mom was screaming for everyone oh. to come because her daughter was levitating. Okay, I thought the daughter was screaming for a second. No, the mom was screaming for people to come help. And then eventually she descended onto the bed and woke up with no memory of what happened. And they said the people who were visiting that night will not return to the house. The kid's levitating. And they're like, we don't know what's happening, but it's not normal. And so they kind of like turned her away. And then eventually she got a hold of a church that like was willing to listen. And okay. they told her to clean the house with bleach and ammonia and then use oil to draw crosses on every door and window. So just poison the house. Essentially. So at the suggestion, she poured olive oil on her three children's head and feet, hands and feet, sorry, then smeared oil in the shape of crosses on their foreheads and did the same on the doors and windows. They then reached out to two clairvoyants who said the family's home was housing more than 200 demons. Yay. They must have been really small demons to all fit. I just picture baby demons stacked on top of each other wearing a trench coat. I picture little leprechauns in black, just jumping up and down, Irish jigging. They were just trying to get into a movie theater underage. You know it. So killing the house didn't work. And I'm like, yes, get the fuck out of there. But then they're like, well, we don't have money to leave. So we're just going to stay anyways. So they decided to make an altar in the basement. They put a white sheet with a white candle and a statue of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus on it. So I guess that works. Did it? <laughs> no. Following building the altar, they burned sage and sulfur throughout the house, starting upstairs and working their way down. The smoke ended up so thick they could hardly breathe. This is so good for you. They said after this happened, nothing happened for three days. So they thought they fixed things. Then they were wrong. They said the children aged seven, nine, and 12 started going through phases where their eyes would bulge and their voices deepened. Ammon, the mom, said she felt really weak um, and lightheaded and out of control. The direct quote was, you can tell it's different, something supernatural. The seven-year-old boy was found frequently in a closet talking to a boy no one else could see. Um, and the nine-year-old boy was constantly describing what it felt like to be murdered. The grandmother said the seven-year-old once flew out of the bathroom as if he'd been thrown and a headboard once smacked onto the 12-year-old daughter, causing a wound that needed stitches. So Campbell is the grandma and Ammons is the mother. And then 12, 9, and 7 are now the names of the children. Um, the 12-year-old... Um, after everything happened, 
told people that she felt like she was being choked um, and held down so she couldn't move. Um, she heard voices telling her she'd never see her family again and that they were going to kill her in 20 minutes. At some points, they were um, sleeping in hotels, which I'm like, you were better off to just move. So in April 2012, in desperation, they went to their family physician. Um, and the physician direct quote says, 20 years ago, and I've never seen anything like that in my life. I was scared myself when I walked into the room. Um, he said he would not speak in more detail um, because of a waiver of confidentiality. Ammons did release a report because Child Protective Service came out after this event. So they're at the doctor. And seven and nine started running at the doctor in demonic vo using demonic voices. Um, and then out of nowhere, Seven was lifted and thrown into the wall with nobody touching him, which um, knocked him out. The two boys got taken to the hospital. When they awoke in the hospital, um, Nine was like completely normal again. But Seven wasn't and was screaming and thrashing and it took five grown men to hold him down. Which I don't know about you, but when I was seven, I weighed like 35 pounds. Like it would take one grown person to pin me down. So when child support came to investigate abuse or neglect, they concluded that there was no abuse or neglect, but that Ammons had a mental illness and was unknowingly encouraging their behavior. That sounds about right. Hospital personnel examined the children and found them to be healthy and free of marks or bruises. Um, while the case manager for Child Protectives was talking with them. Um, the seven-year-old started growling and showing his teeth and his eyes rolled into the back of his head. He locked his hands around his brother's throat and refused to let go. It took four adults to get his hands off of him, which again, seems excessive. So later that evening, a nurse brought two boys into the exam room for a re an interview. The seven-year-old looked at his brother and started to growl again, and in a deep, unnatural voice said, it's time to die, I will kill you. And then they say, what happened next um, rattled witnesses, and to some, it would offer not only evidence, but proof of paranormal activity. The nine-year-old had a weird grin and walked backward up a wall to the ceiling, then flipped over Campbell, landing on his feet. He never let go of his grandmother's hand. Later, police asked, whether the boy had run up the wall as though performing an acrobatic trick. And the nurse said, no, he glided backwards on the floor, wall, and ceiling. So my mental image is like Michael Jackson moonwalking up a wall, but they still chalked it all up to mental illness. Um, Ammon spent that night in the hospital with the seven-year-old and Campbell took the 12-year-old and 9-year-old to a relative's home. Then, the next morning, Child Protective Service took custody of the children with a court order. That sounds like a good call. Yeah. So then, Reverend Michael Magnot, who was leading a Bible study in his living room the morning of April 20th, um, received a call from the hospital. They asked him to perform an exorcism on the 9-year-old. 
um, he agreed to interview the family. Um, the first step was ruling out natural causes for what was happening. They um, would stop the interview because of a flickering light and every time he went over to investigate, the flickering stopped, which he attributed to a demonic presence. Okay. And later said, direct quote, it must be scared of me. Does any later evidence indicate any sort of intimidation factor from this, from this priest? No. Um, he said the interview was interrupted again when Venetian blinds in the kitchen started swinging, even though there was no air current. And um, he was seeing wet footprints throughout the living room. Ammons had made a comment about having a headache and um, Maginaw said that she convulsed when he placed a crucifix against her head. After a four hour interview, he was fully convinced the family was being tormented. And he also believed that among the demons, there were also normal ghosts. In How do they make that distinction? I guess the normal ghosts are the ones that aren't in their bodies. The normal ghost is the one that was just trying to walk out of the house going up the basement stairs. So before he left, he blessed the house and sprinkled holy water in each room. Um, he told them to leave because it wasn't safe. So they temporarily moved in with a relative. Um, but less than a week later, they were back in the apartment. So they basically... They messed up. The kids were still in custody of Child Protective, though. Um, they now have temporary wardship of the children. Um, and found out that they were not in school regularly. So they were able to file it on neglect. Um, now, Ammons claimed that there were times she could not send the kids to school because the spirits would make them sick or they would be up all night because of the spirits. All three were separated. At the home, the boy was, the youngest boy was at, they said he acted possessed when he was challenged or asked questions he didn't want to answer. The doctor that did this said that he seemed coherent and logical except for when he talked about demons. Um, but at that point, the boy, now eight, um, his story started to become bizarre, fragmented, and illogical. He would change the subject, quizzing right on math problems and asking her out of, about outer space. They believed the eight-year-old did not suffer from a psychotic disorder. They claim this appears to be an unfortunate case where the child has been induced into a delusional system perpetuated by his mother and potentially reinforced. The kids are reporting that they were seeing shadowy figures at the home um, and going into trances that doors would slam and stuff would move around. So now in May, Campbell, Ammons, Austin, two, police two other police officers and the Child Protective Services went back to the house. So then they went down into the basement um, and the CPS person saw a strange liquid dripping and said it felt slippery yet sticky between your fingers, which don't touch it. The priest said he wanted to check the dirt under the stairs for a pentagram or personal objects that might have been cursed. He said a pentagram might indicate a demonic presence and a portal to hell. Really? No. Mm -hmm. He also said that perhaps the person had died in the house and was buried under the stairs. So they dug a four by three foot hole beneath the stairs, unearthing a pink press on fingernail, 
a white pair of underwear, a political shirt pin, a lid for a small cooking pan, socks with the bottoms cut off below the ankles, candy wrappers, and a heavy metal object that looked like a weight. Finding nothing else, they replaced the dirt. The priest blessed some salt, which he said is a barrier to evil, and spread it under the stairs and throughout the basement. I didn't know that about salt. That is news to me. I, I've heard it before. Salt is somewhat considered a cleanser. I'm not sure how much stock I'd put in that, but... uh. So now we're at nightfall, and the police, Austin, like, had one left. He was like, I'm not staying here after dark. Fuck this. The other officers stayed and continued to walk through the home. On the main floor, they noticed oil dripping from the blinds in the bedroom, but couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Um, to make sure they hadn't poured oil on the blinds, two of the officers used paper towels to clean it off and sealed the room for 25 minutes and stood nearby so no one could walk in. Um, when they went back, the oil had reappeared. Um, the priest said the liquid was a manis- manifestation of a demonic presence. So now we're at the exorcism. Mm-hmm. The request was initially denied. And so this priest, who's never been trained in it, looked it up on the internet and was like, I can do it. Same. Um, so he said he did an intense blessing on the house to expel bad spirits and performed a minor exorcism on Ammons. Um, the ritual consisted of two prayers. That's it. Um, after the ritual, the priest told Ammons to look up the names of the demons that were tormenting her. I don't know how she knows the name. Facebook for demons? Like, how do you look up the name of your demon? So apparently the power of a name can be used against the demons to fight them in exorcism. Sure. Um, So Ammons looked up the demons' names online by searching for demons that represented the problems the family had been having. So he guessed. Yeah. He made an educated guess. Basically. And I'm not going to name it because I know there's shit surrounded like saying the name out loud. Um, supposedly, and I don't want to risk it. I'm superstitious. I'm just saying, we seem to be having lots of conflicting claims as to what is haunting this house, if anything at all. Mm-hmm. So they have the demons' names now, though. All 200 of them? After this, um, he's going to exercise them again. And um, now the Catholic Church has backed him, so it's going to be more powerful, these prayers because the Catholic Church has said he can do it. How does giving permission increase the power of a prayer? Because even within the Catholic faith, you're supposed to be able to pray with or without counsel. You can only be absolved of sins by, like, the actual church itself, but you can pray regardless. So why would permission make a difference? Around the year 416, the Roman Catholic Church made the decision that before you could perform an exorcism, you could, um, you had to get permission explicitly from the church, specifically your superior, which in most cases was the bishop of that province, Mm -hmm. due to the danger of it. Um, And so basically they're saying if an exorcism is not authorized by the church, it will fail. And the exorcist who initiated and engaged in the proceedings is putting everyone present, himself included, in mortal danger. See, but then, as I recall, there was mortal danger even in the exorcism with permission. Mm -hmm. So 
it sounds like the only difference between a, an exorcism with permission and an exorcism without permission is that you had permission. The results don't change. Mm-hmm. So he has the backing of the church. Okay. And ultimately ended up performing three exorcisms in the church. During each, he said he praised God and condemned the devil, pressed a crucifix against Ammons's head, um, and said, I cast you out, unclean spirit, along with every satanic power of the enemy, every specter from hell, and all your fell companions in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As someone who doesn't practice a religion, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm an atheist. I'm going to say I'm agnostic. I really hope these ghosts and demons actually were from the Christian hell and that they weren't just like Chinese monkey gods. Because otherwise that prayer would have been entirely worthless. Yeah. It just sounds really weird to me that worse is all that would be all that would be needed to get rid of 200 demons. Traditionally, words were believed to have actual power, like they were supposed to be literal forms of uh, energy that that literally contained concepts and notions. That's why spells with like verbal casting were considered like really important in a lot of different mystical beliefs. Nowadays, we know a bit better. So we've pressed crucifixes against heads. We've said that chant or whatever. And he said his voice continued to get louder and more forceful until the demon weakened. And he could tell how strong the demon was by how much Ammons convulsed. So Ammons said that she prayed with him until it became too painful. And she felt as if something inside her was trying to hold on and inflict pain at the same time. It was different from natural pain, but felt as intense as giving birth. I will never know what that feels like, so I can't comment on that. But wait, this was a kid, right? No, this was the mom. Oh, they were exercising the mom. Mm -hmm. But the kids were the ones who were possessed. No, it was the kids and the mom, but the kids had the weirdest behaviors. In the final exorcism, the one in Latin... And Ammons apparently convulsed while he condemned the demons, but not during prayer. And that was the last time Ammons saw the priest. Um, And now they live without fear. Um, The house became like an oddity. The landlord had to have the police department ask people to stop driving by the house because it was scaring the new tenant. He said there were no problems in the home before or after Ammons lived there. And the landlord says, um, this was a new one to me. My belief system has a hard time jumping that bridge. Ammons regained custody of her children six months after. um, And Child Protective Services continued to check in on them. Um, The children claim they felt safe after they left the house. No demonic presences or spirits in the home. Case manager wrote in team meeting notes. The family no longer fixated solely on religion to explain or cope with the children's behavior issues. Um, For her part, Ammon said it was not the psychologist who resolved her problems, but God. The final direct quote from her is, when you hear something like this, don't assume it's not real because I've lived it. I know it's real. And that is the exorcism story of Ammon's. So the fact that like the kids weren't exercise ever does to me feel like she was perpetuating their behavior yep also it's ironic that the uh what was it the psychologists concluded that like 
the family had stopped attributing everything to religion. And then immediately the mom attributes everything to God. Again, I've never seen a story with more conflicting testimonies in my life. There was a kid who climbed a wall at one point and we never addressed that again. Um, What was the wet, sticky substance the child protective officer touched? Um, What happened to the kid that got thrown into the wall multiple Mm -hmm. times? And why were there no bruises? If he was actually getting thrown into walls, he should have cuts and bruises. I guess we'll never know. Ghosts move in mysterious ways. I got bruised falling out of my bed last night. It's unfortunate, sir. I'm sorry. You're welcome. welcome. All right. It's your turn now. I don't think I trust a single one of these guys that they actually communicated with a ghost. It sounds to me like everything they tried didn't work. The Latin exorcism did work. Allegedly, but it, w- but it would have only exercised one of them. Not, not even the house, which is where they said all the ghosts were in the first place. Why is your claim that it would have only exercised one of them? Unless every individual was possessed by the same ghost simultaneously, as well as the house was, o- was possessed by the same ghosts or spirits simultaneously. You're saying they only exercised one demon out or one individual? One individual. Okay. I was on a different page. Okay. Yes, I agree with you there. I thought you were saying that they couldn't have exercised all of the demons out in just one. And I was like, uh, how do you know that? I mean, hypothetically, uh, the exorcism when they said casting out all the demons, all the ghosts from hell, hypothetically, that would be a a cover, a a big all cover blanket, you know, but but, uh, you only did it to one of the people. That goes then right back to everyone saying that she perpetuated it. I agree. But then that doesn't explain the fact that medical professionals and police officers said this kid was climbing up walls and getting thrown into them. Again, the firsthand accounts and then the professional diagnoses from the people who actually studied the physical and mental health of the children involved and everything Mm -hmm. don't line up. Correct. To me, this sounds more like a case of firsthand paranoia and attention absorption as opposed to actual paranormal effects. No, I mean, it's funny that um, to me, I feel like the personal stories that I brought up today feel more valid than that entire thing. And part of it, I guess, is that like the personal experiences are just so brief. Unfortunately, there seems to be a trend between having more information about a haunting and suddenly the haunting seeming a lot more explainable by normal means. Right. That's basically the argument for every haunting, is in general, the more you know about, the, about what happened, the less likely it was that it was a ghost. I will say, I feel like all of my personal accounts from friends and everything, I believe more than that exorcism. Now, of course, I wasn't there. Of course, I'm going to believe my friends because they're my friends and I love them and trust them. Yeah. But I couldn't imagine that being particularly easy for one to believe. So take with it what you will. Did you want to say anything about the other hauntings that we talked about? What I can do is talk about the physics behind 
what would be the challenges with communicating with ghosts? Yeah, go for it. Uh, so this was actually pretty interesting uh, because depending on the form that a ghost takes, the method of communication you would best be off trying to use changes. For example, lots of ghosts, especially ones that you interact with, with like a Ouija boards, they're invisible. Right. We can't see them. Most of the time, people can't even see them on infrared or anything like that. Mm -hmm. They're invisible to the electromagnetic spectrum. If you are invisible to the electromagnetic spectrum, light doesn't reflect off of you and you don't absorb any of that energy, which also means you're blind because that's how vision works. So if you have an invisible specter in your house and you're playing with the Ouija board, they can't read the letters and words that are on your Ouija board. So the better method of trying to interact with an invisible ghost is actually to try communicating with sound. Because while a ghost may be uh, invisible, at least if we're considering the Ouija board to be valid in any way, uh, the ghost still has to help move the object so they can interact with physical things. And that would also explain why lots of Ouija boards, when you do get contact with a ghost, it results in an object moving or in a sound. Mm -hmm. And that also makes it understandable as to why EMF detectors are so important. There do seem to, from what you've told me, be downsides to this kind of, uh, to trying to communicate with a ghost, even with sound, which is that uh, based on what you said about spirits being essentially residual energy that has to build up over time and can be diminished by the production of a single sound. It means that any communication is, first of all, probably one way, because as soon as they actually give you a sound or a sign, that, that's all, folks. Wrap up the cartoon. So unless they're sending a one-way message, which is probably very short and conveys very little information, they're probably not actually contacting you. The other issue, of course, then becomes how much energy does a ghost need to pick up to interpret what you're saying to it? Just because we live in the U.S. doesn't mean you're going to summon something that's, that speaks English. You know, I'm going to speak 21st century English to a ghost who's French in the French Revolution. There's an odd assumption. That ghosts are universal translators. You know, so things like that, like they, if you, if you're encountering an invisible ghost, they can't see. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep that in mind when trying to communicate with them. I definitely think your two best ways to go about it would be either to produce actual sound or to create uh, physical perturbations, either through like wind or through a, uh, even heat, potentially, mm -hmm. to try and excite the form of the ghost in consistent ways. A ghost could, in theory, have pattern recognition. It also might explain why it t typically takes a long time for any of these interactions to come up, because if you just, like, move something, it could literally take the ghost forever to just find it. <laughs> so, yeah, invisible ghost... They're blind, but not deaf, and they should be able to touch. Okay. They may not be able to touch constantly, 
which is why you don't, you know, bump into one in the room, but they can at the very least interact with things physically. But if you think how many people there are in the world, and then think how many people died, think if they're all ghosts, you would have so many ghosts touching your butt constantly. I have to agree. Also, why is it, why is it mostly humans? Why are there no dinosaur ghosts? Because that would be fucking sweet. Awesome. Anyway, if you can't see them, then they're blind. If you can see them, but they are intangible, so you can't touch them, they can go through walls and stuff, then they are deaf, but not blind. That's when you would be able to pull off something like a Ouija board or like a sign language or something like that. But because sound waves are literally like information traveling through air and physically interacting with matter, an intangible ghost would not be able to hear. Okay, so our invisible ones can hear but not see. Your intangible can see but not hear. Exactly. Now, here's my thing. I have an issue with this whole, they're only here if they have a purpose. We're going to move into that. I am a fairly firm believer of ghosts because of my personal experiences. And I will say, yes, I'm autistic. Um, Yes, I have depression. And those are all things that are claimed to make you more susceptible to it. They say the people who are most in touch with it are your little kids, the elderly, and those who've had near-death experiences. Just because I saw something once does not guarantee that it was ever actually there. The problem is that the same things that increase your susceptibility to encountering and understanding ghosts is also the same thing that gives you a higher chance of delusions and, and a higher chance of uh, false sensory inputs. Saying you saw something is a fact. That alone is indisputable. Your experience is indisputable. It's just the interpretation could be off. I feel like to assume they have to have a big purpose to fulfill before they can leave is a little pretentious. Um, And to think you're going to be the one to solve it is extremely pretentious. If you believe reincarnations and past lives, you're reincarnated because you haven't fulfilled your purpose. Therefore, a ghost wouldn't be stuck here for not fulfilling their purpose. They would have been reincarnated. Did any of the stories stick out to you as like, there's no way in hell that happened? Many. (laughs) Many. The unfortunate thing about the scientific perspective on these things is that the scientific perspective on all things is if you don't yet understand it, one day someone else will. There is an, a rational explanation for everything, provided you have the tools and expertise to find it. So basically all of these things are attributed to ghosts because there was no other explanation known to the people who experienced them. That's especially clear when you have the psychologists and the medical examinations of those kids in that one story versus the personal accounts of a nurse and a couple cops, neither of whom were qualified to analyze the actual medical or psychological healths of the children and the mom and all that. So I'm inclined to believe that deeper and more educated uh, investigation into any ghost story could eventually yield a rational empirical conclusion. That's the problem with the scientific perspective here is I could easily just say it will one day be understood, just not now. But that's not a satisfying conclusion to a ghost story. 
which is why for the most part I tried to talk about, you know, how to make communication better. And as we can see, lots of people go about it the wrong way with all their encounters. And so I think that in general, the, the moral of this story is that our communication with ghosts so far has been very poor. This is another interesting thought. Um, my sister and I both have a lot of accounts of th seeing things. My mom and my dad also both do, as far as I know my entire family can. Like none of us try and see anything. None of us intentionally talk to anything. If you're someone who wants to see them, is that your most successful way? You can never communicate with them, but be open to it. That establishes another issue with the communication of ghosts that I didn't really specifically mention, but I had it in my notes, is that in all of these communications, you have to do it by the ghost's terms. The ghost is the only one who can actually establish communication, which means most actual attempts at communication will fail right. unless the ghost actually intends to give meaningful information. Like when you anger a spirit at a Ouija board and negative consequences occur, you're not sure if that's actually them sending a message to you or if they accidentally stumbled. Right. I think that the moral here is that communicating with a ghost in a meaningful way is not only inconsistent currently, but we typically take approaches that don't even make sense. Yeah. Trying to spell words out with a blind ghost, speak meaningful words to a ghost who's deaf. I'm just saying, like, as paranormal investigation progresses, if it is to progress, it'll have to acknowledge physical limitations of ghosts in communication and difficulties in contacting them. You'll have to literally change the way you perceive communication with a ghost. Yeah. Just like you would have to change your perception of communicating with animals. Right. So we're going to end this because this has ended up being a much longer episode. Yeah, it actually wound up going farther than I thought it would. So we're saying communication with ghosts or attempted communications with ghosts exists, but we're going about it the wrong way. Yeah. Okay. I'm inclined to believe that we've done it wrong for a very long time and that that mean that invalidates most ghost ghost direct ghost sightings in many ways. You know, I think this I think this is one of the better ones that I've done in in not just being totally crushing towards the premise. I enjoyed it. This was fun. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, you can find us on our website, conspiracycrasherspodcast.com. Go there, because on that website, it has a link to listen, a link for merch. Um, the Patreon link is up through that. You can learn a little bit about us on it. Um, it's a pretty cool place. Um, we also can be found on Instagram at Conspiracy Crashers Podcast, um, where we will be starting to announce next week's episodes on the Instagram by posting some cryptid images for you guys to try and use to figure out what we're covering. We can be found on Facebook at Conspiracy Crashers, on Twitter at, at Conspiracy Pods, and our email if you have suggestions, ideas of what you want us to cover 
advice, whatever. Tell us your men in black experience in skeleton suits at conspiracycrasher at gmail.com. Yeah. Yeah.